think that's all I need to say before we start. So let's begin with prayer, and then we'll look at this. Father, as we come to think about the Holy Spirit, we have to acknowledge our complete dependence on the Holy Spirit. And so we ask that you will send your Spirit to guide us and teach us. We want to think thoughts that are true and right. And so as we look at your Word and try to understand what it teaches, I pray that even in that your Holy Spirit will be doing his work to give us wisdom and understanding and right knowledge of you. And we ask these things for your glory. Amen. This is the third slot in our series on the Holy Spirit. Back in February, we looked at the story of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. Then in March, the story of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. I won't spend much time going back over those, but just to remind you at the start of some of the key points, we saw, first of all, that according to the Bible, the Holy Spirit is God, just as much God as God the Father and God the Son. And then we saw that the Holy Spirit's work, if you wanted to describe his work in an overall way, it's to lead creation to its destiny. So someone has explained it like this. The Spirit is the one who enables things to become what they were created to be. The Spirit is the one who enables things to become what they were created to be. And that is a crucial point for us to understand. Because what it means is the Holy Spirit is not here to be used by you and me. He's not here to throw his weight behind our plans. The Holy Spirit has his own divine plans to fulfill. He's here to bring creation to perfection. And he knows exactly how to achieve that. He's not looking for guidance from us about how to do it. And when we looked at the Old Testament, we thought about the Holy Spirit's work in creation and also in the life of Israel. And then last time when we came to the New Testament... We thought about the Holy Spirit and the life of Jesus. From Jesus' conception right through to his resurrection, he lived in the power of the Holy Spirit. We can't miss that when we read through the Gospels. The references to the Holy Spirit come thick and fast in Jesus' life. And last time I said, what that is showing us is that the only way a human being can live a life that honors God is by living in dependence on the Holy Spirit. And I know from talking to some of you that raised some questions. Doesn't that diminish Jesus' divinity when we say that? Well, the answer is not at all. During his life on earth, Jesus the man was also and always the Son of God. His divine power was not diminished at all. But the point is... Jesus chose to do what you and I have to do. He chose to live in dependence on the Holy Spirit. You and I must. No doubt Jesus could have done things differently if he wanted. But you and I can't. A life that honors God is impossible for us unless we rely on the power of the Spirit. 
And Jesus chose to illustrate that for us in his own life. From his conception to his resurrection, his life was a spirit-empowered life. Last time we also looked at the Spirit's work after Jesus returned to heaven. That work began at Pentecost. Pentecost was a one-off event. It brought about a permanent change in how God's people experienced the Holy Spirit. After Pentecost, the Holy Spirit doesn't just come upon God's people to empower them for certain tasks. That seems to be how things worked in the Old Testament. But since Pentecost, the Holy Spirit lives within God's people. So if we've looked at the story of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament and the New Testament, what's left? Well, our focus this time is on the work of the Holy Spirit today. Now, obviously, we learn that from the New Testament, but we're no longer dealing now with the events that are recorded in the New Testament, such as Jesus' life and Pentecost. This is about what the Holy Spirit has been doing and what the Holy Spirit is doing beyond the New Testament days. And last time we did see one of the Holy Spirit's main activities today. That is testifying to the truth about Jesus. We described it, if you were here last time, as a floodlight ministry. The Holy Spirit works to turn the spotlight onto Jesus and to glorify Jesus. And then when we come tonight to say more about the work of the Holy Spirit today, the first thing we may have to do is to adjust our thinking a little bit. That's because you and I might tend to think of the Holy Spirit and me. What is the Holy Spirit going to do for me and in me? But when we read the New Testament, what we find is the New Testament speaks in terms of the Holy Spirit and the church. The focus is not so much on what is the Holy Spirit going to do in me and for me as an individual, but what is his work in and for the people of God, the church. And what we find is the Spirit's work is essential for the church. Jim Packer explains it like this. The Christian life, in all its aspects, intellectual and ethical, devotional and relational, upsurging in worship and outgoing in witness, is supernatural. Only the Spirit can initiate and sustain it. So apart from him, not only will there be no lively believers and no lively congregations, there will be no believers and no congregations at all. That's another way of saying what we said a moment ago. We are totally dependent on the Holy Spirit. And we honor God when we live in a way that constantly shows our dependence on the Spirit. So we're going to look at this under two headings. The Holy Spirit gives life to the church. And the Holy Spirit develops life in the church. First. He gives life to the church. Now it's true that men and women are called to repent 
and to believe the good news. But what the New Testament tells us is it's the Spirit who gives new spiritual life. Here's how Jesus explained it to a man called Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. What does that mean? Well, Jesus is talking there to a man who knew the Old Testament. Nicodemus was a teacher of the Old Testament. And Jesus is talking there about an Old Testament promise God made through the prophet Ezekiel. God said to his people, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. So God promised cleansing, symbolized by water, and along with cleansing, God promised new life for his people. Every human being has been born of the flesh. But every human being needs new spiritual birth if we're going to enter God's kingdom. And in John 3, Jesus says, that is the work of the Holy Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to spirit. And the message is, you and I can't bring about our own spiritual birth any more than a baby can bring about its own physical birth. We're called to repent and believe the good news, but it is the Spirit of God who gives us new life. We can't bring about our own spiritual birth and no Christian can bring about anyone else's spiritual birth. We're all called as Christians to be witnesses for Christ. To share the good news with other people. But no sermon or no conversation by itself can give another person spiritual life. The Apostle Paul knew that. And this is what he wrote to the church in Thessalonica. And he's thinking here back to the time when he initially visited these people and he shared the gospel with them. He says, we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you, not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction." In other words, Paul says, I know it takes more than just my words to change people. Paul says, I take my responsibility very seriously. I work hard to share the message. But I cannot give people spiritual life. That happens when the Holy Spirit takes my gospel message and uses it to penetrate men and women's hearts and make them spiritually alive. And so Paul looks at the changed lives of these men and women and his explanation is, the Spirit did this. When I visited you, the Holy Spirit went to work among you. This is his work. And before we move on, this is a really important truth for us to keep in mind. 
If you're a Christian, it is not because you're smarter or more perceptive than other people. It's because the Holy Spirit took the truth of the gospel and he opened your heart to receive it. And this truth also saves you and me from either pride or discouragement when we share the gospel with others. We have a responsibility to share the message as clearly and as thoughtfully and carefully as we can. But if there is no response, it doesn't mean we are rubbish. And if there is a response, it doesn't mean we're the bee's knees. We do have a responsibility, but it's not the responsibility of producing new life in people's hearts. That is a supernatural work that only the Holy Spirit can do. I think in a lot of ways that lifts a burden from us. As we heard from Jim Packer earlier, apart from the Holy Spirit, there would be no believers and no congregations at all. And that is why our words of witness have to be surrounded by prayer. We have to acknowledge our utter dependence on the Spirit. We have to ask Him to work through us and guide us as we witness. So it's the Holy Spirit who gives life to the church, and it's the Holy Spirit who develops life in the church. And we're going to look at five ways he does that. He applies scripture. He brings unity. He produces fruit. He distributes gifts. And he enables perseverance. So first, the Holy Spirit applies scripture. Back in the Old Testament, God promised that he would put his laws in the minds of his people, and that he would write them on the hearts of his people. In other words, they wouldn't just be external anymore. They would be implanted in his people. And in the passage we looked at earlier in Ezekiel, God promised he would do that by the Holy Spirit. He said, I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my law. So the Holy Spirit who inspired the writing of Scripture in the first place, and we looked at that in previous weeks, that Spirit now makes that Scripture live in the hearts of God's people. That's part of his work today. And it's not that the Holy Spirit gives us new brain power. Someone who's not a Christian can read the words on the page just as well as a Christian can. But what the Spirit does is give a new receptiveness and love for what the Bible says. We read the Bible or we hear it read and it comes to us not just as words written a long time ago. We receive it for what it is, God's living word to us. A writer called Brighton Knox has explained what it means for the Spirit to write God's word on our heart. He says the Spirit touches the inmost part of our personality so that we align ourselves with what is being said. 
Anyone who has a decent bit of determination can read the Bible and understand what the Bible is saying. But it's the Holy Spirit who causes men and women to align themselves with what is being said. So that we don't just hear God's word, we receive it and we're changed by it. It becomes written in our hearts and then worked out into our lives. And so, it's important for us to pray before we read or hear scripture. Asking God to make his words come alive to us and in us. And do its work in our hearts. A long time ago, Thomas Cranmer prayed a very famous prayer asking that we would have the ability as Christians to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest the scriptures. And we pray those kind of prayers because, yes, it's our responsibility to feed ourselves on scripture, but only the Holy Spirit enables us to inwardly digest scripture. And that work is one of the most significant ways the Holy Spirit develops life in the church. Another way is that he brings unity. If you want to see whether the the Spirit is at work in a local church, don't look for spectacular manifestations in that local church. Look for evidence of unity among God's people. This is what Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. The New Testament refers to the church as the body of Christ. That's what Paul's talking about. We were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free. And in Ephesians, Paul talks about unity as the unity of the Spirit. The unity created by the Spirit. Now I think it's possible to fake unity by having a church of people who are all fairly similar. Maybe all from the same social background. Or the same age bracket. Or the same preference in worship style. There is a certain kind of unity we can manufacture around those common interests or common backgrounds. But only the Holy Spirit can unite people across backgrounds. And age brackets and preferences. True Christian fellowship is created by the Spirit. And as with all of these things we're looking at, God has given us a responsibility. He calls us to love one another. He calls us to bear with one another. To share our lives with one another. But we do all of those things in dependence on the Spirit. We do them recognizing that without the Spirit, we will not hold together. We will so disappoint and infuriate one another that we'll give up on one another. 
So as part of our commitment to fellowship, we have to make it one of our constant prayers that the Spirit will deepen and develop our unity. Well, they're very much connected to this issue of unity. The Holy Spirit develops life in the church by producing fruit. In Galatians, we come across these very famous verses which say, Galatians 5, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. When we come eventually to look at the gifts of the Spirit, what we'll see is the Spirit gives different gifts to different Christians. But when it comes to the fruit of the Spirit, the same fruit is for every Christian. And as we look at this description, this fruit, John Stott has made the observation that what we're looking at actually is a portrait of Jesus Christ. And that's true. Jesus exhibited these qualities perfectly in his life. And as he did so, Jesus was showing us what it means to be truly human. Sin has given us a false image of what humanity is meant to be and look like. But when we look at Jesus, we're seeing true humanity. And what the Spirit is working at today is he's transforming God's people into what we were meant to be. It is God's intention, Romans says, that his people become conformed to the image of his son. Sinclair Ferguson explains it like this. The goal of the spirit is transformation into the image of God, as that is expressed in Christ's humanity, so that believers become progressively more truly and fully human. So when you and I hear about the fruit of the Spirit, it's not just an additional extra thing that we're hearing about. What we're hearing about is a really, truly glorious thing. This is about being remade into what we were meant to be. And it's a supernatural work. The fruit of the Spirit is not produced by you and me making resolutions to clean up our act again. We cannot produce this fruit. Sometimes we do studies on the fruit of the Spirit and then we try to focus really, really hard on being more joyful. Or really, really hard on having more peace in our lives. But when we do that, we're ignoring what the Bible says. The Spirit produces this fruit, not us. However, having said that, we do have a responsibility in this, as we do in all of these areas that we're looking at. And so right after Galatians 5 tells us the Spirit produces the fruit, Galatians 6 tells us 
we are to do the sowing. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the spirit from the spirit will reap eternal life. So here's the message of Galatians 5 and 6. We cannot produce spiritual fruit in our lives. But the sowing we do determines what kind of fruit is going to be produced in our lives. John Stott says, Some Christians are surprised that they are not reaping the fruit of the Spirit, although they spend a great deal of their time sowing to the flesh. And he goes on to say, By sowing... The apostle appears to be referring to the whole pattern of our thoughts and habits, our lifestyle, life direction, and life discipline. It includes the company we keep, the friendships we cultivate, the literature we read, the films we watch, the kind of pursuits with which we occupy our leisure, and everything which engrosses our interest, absorbs our energy, and dominates our mind. By these things we are sowing, sowing, sowing all the time. And according to what and where we sow, thus we shall reap. So have you noticed so far in all the aspects of the Spirit's work, there's a clear indication that we can't do his work. And there's also a call to us to cooperate with the Holy Spirit as he does his work. And that is nowhere more clear than here. We cannot make ourselves more joyful, for example. But we can sow in such a way that the Spirit will produce joy in us and peace and so on. And along with this challenge about our sowing, we also need to keep in mind fruit doesn't ripen overnight. Again, in these comments from John Stott, he says, What is true of the fruit of the orchard is equally true of the fruit of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not in a hurry. Character, and that's what the fruit of the Spirit is, Character is the product of a lifetime. Now those words are not an excuse to be lazy. They are an encouragement to us to keep going. Keep sowing diligently. And over time, the Spirit will bring a harvest of Christ-likeness in your life. We might get impatient The Holy Spirit doesn't. He's not in a hurry. Now I've purposely mentioned the fruit of the Spirit before the gifts of the Spirit. Because most of us are naturally pretty fascinated by the gifts. But I think I'm on safe ground when I say that God is much more interested in the fruit. 
That's because God is more interested with our character than our ability. And that is the difference between the fruit and the gifts. We know that the church in Corinth had all of the spiritual gifts. Paul says that in chapter 1 of his first letter to the Corinthians. Those people had all the abilities. But as we read on in that letter, we discover they were woefully lacking in spiritual fruit. And what Paul works to do in 1 Corinthians is he encourages them pretty strongly to focus on the fruit. And that's quite ironic because we tend to think of that letter as being about gifts. And Paul does mention the gifts. But he does it in a way to de-emphasize them in that church fellowship. So I think it's correct to think of the gifts as having a secondary place to the fruit. God is much more interested in our Christ-likeness than in our ability. But having said that, uh, because we're so focused on the gifts, I'm planning to spend the whole of our next table talk on the gifts. So I'm just going to mention them today in passing. And it is certainly true that one of the ways the Holy Spirit develops life in the church is that he distributes gifts. And the key verse about gifts is this verse. As Paul talks about the gifts in 1 Corinthians 12, he says... Now to each one, that's each individual member of the church, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. The Spirit does not give gifts so the individual who has the gift can big themselves up in the church or be bigged up by the people around them because of the gift that they have. The gifts are given to build up the church body. They are for the common good rather than the individual good. Someone has said, spiritual gifts are God empowering his people through the Holy Spirit for kingdom life and service. And you and I do not get to choose which gifts we're given. Later in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says, the Spirit distributes them to each one just as he determines. When it comes to the fruit of the Spirit, we know if we sow the right way, the Spirit will produce in us love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But when it comes to the gifts, We don't know what we're going to get. There's no particular sowing you and I can do to get a particular gift. That's the difference between a fruit and a gift. A gift is just given to you. Now there may be ways that you can develop a gift once you have it. But the gift itself doesn't grow out of any sowing That you and I do. That's all I'll say today about the gifts. We'll spend the whole time looking at them next time. So 
So then finally for today, and very briefly, the Holy Spirit enables perseverance. Second Corinthians chapter 2. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. So the message is the Holy Spirit does not waste his time on lost causes. If he is at work in you, then he is going to finish what he started in you. He will enable you to persevere to the end. And in the end, he will have transformed you into the image of Christ with ever-increasing glory. That's all I've planned to say. So I don't know if that raised any questions or comments. Just if it's any help, what we'll, we'll plan to spend two more nights on this. Next time we'll look particularly at the gifts, which is a, a wide topic. It probably warrants a whole session. And then the last one, what I'm going to try to do is look at some particular questions that we might have about the Holy Spirit that haven't necessarily cropped up in the, the things we've looked at so far. So just a series of questions. And... Um, that will be our, our last one. But are there any comments, things you wanted to ask about? Nathan has the mic, so if you just put your hand up before you ask, then everyone can hear. Tim, you, you say that um, if we sow in the right way, the Spirit will put the fruit in us. Uh, it seems a bit like he's dependent on us to produce the right sowing action, and then he will do what we ask him to do. But as I see more like God has chosen people from eternity, and he will put his spirit in them and give them life and fruit and don't see how that is dependent on our sowing. Well, as you read through the New Testament, essentially what we're talking about when we talk about the fruit of the Spirit is holiness. Do you see calls in the New Testament for us to pursue holiness? And that's essentially... The, the only point that I was making, and I think it is what Galatians 6, I mean, we, we, could, we could go back to those. It's pretty striking, and, and I think all we're seeing there, the Bible constantly lays two things side by side. Divine sovereignty, God is in control, nothing messes up his plans, nothing snatches his people away from him, nothing takes him by surprise. And alongside that, the Bible always lays human responsibility. And it's not embarrassed to do that. So it says, uh, you find in the book of Acts, uh, Peter saying to the believers in Jerusalem, God has granted the Gentiles repentance unto life. 
And then you hear the apostles preaching and they say, repent and believe. And so we ask, well, which is it? Does the Holy Spirit give it as a gift or are we called to do it? And the answer is both. And so when we talk about holiness, does God produce holiness and spiritual fruit and Christ-likeness in us? Yes. And does he call us to pursue it? And does he take away any excuse for us being lazy and pursuing sin and holding on to sin? No, he doesn't give us any excuse to continue in sin. He says, pursue holiness. Without holiness, you won't see the Lord. Hebrews 12, we'll come to that next week. And he says, if you sow to the flesh, you'll reap destruction. So I think that's what we're... And, and all of these, everyone on the screen, the Spirit gives, the, the, the Scripture gives a work that only the Spirit can do. And, and I tried to point out, it also gives a human responsibility that we must give ourselves to. So does that... Yeah. And I think it's a balance that scripture, we try to resolve it, don't we? Well, it's got to be this bit. This has got to be slightly more important or it's, it's got to be this side. But the, the, the scripture just lays them out. That's the way it is. God's sovereign. We have a responsibility. We've no excuse to reject the gospel. We've no excuse to continue in sin. Somebody show a little bit of fruit of the spirit or loads of it, dependent on how you sow. Yeah, definitely. At one end, you've got Jesus Christ, the perfect displayer of the fruit of the spirit, and at the other end, you've got a Christian who's a day old, that not much fruit has ripened yet, and probably we look at our own lives and think, well, I'm closer to this end of things than here. Sometimes that's because we can't see it in our own lives. And, and the further we go, the more we are shown what to work on. I think as we go on in our Christian life, we see more and more areas that we could pursue Christ more. And so that's part of it. We, we can't see progress in our own lives. But the other part of it is, when we see him, we will be like him. So there is a, a progression that the Holy Spirit is doing, but we will be made like him when he returns and we're, the work is completed. So yeah, I think all of us are, it's a work in progress. And, and as John Stott said, the Holy Spirit is not impatient. He works slowly and carefully and we can be very thankful for that with us. Would it not be true to say that the ability to sow comes from the Holy Spirit? Yes, yeah, I and mean, we wouldn't be Christians in the first place if it wasn't uh, if it wasn't for the Spirit. But what what the New Testament does is, if we look in Galatians six, it just takes away this idea that some people have. Well, it's all up to God. I don't need to be careful what I expose myself to. I don't need to dig into the Bible, I don't need to work on the way I treat other people because God's going to do it. 
just a comment that if we could see and measure the amount of fruit in the, of the Spirit in us, then it would give place to pride, wouldn't it? Yeah, I think that's true, yeah. And another element to this is we always have to take into account where someone has come from. Because we might look at someone and say, well, they've been a Christian for a while and there doesn't seem to be much progress, but we've got to measure it from where where were those people when God saved them? And what we might find is the place they're at is a massive amount of progress. And maybe we came to the Lord in a situation where we had a lot of a, a lot of stability in our lives, a lot of good habits already there, and we might be a lot further along, but actually the Spirit has brought that other person way further than we've gone. I think that can be helpful too. Yes, I'm reading to Peter, and Peter says, make every effort to to add to your faith, and then he uh, lists things like goodness, um, knowledge, uh, self-control, perseverance, and so on. But then he goes on to say, uh, those people don't do, who don't do those things are short-sighted and blind, and uh, and are forgetting that they've been cleansed from their past sins. So, as you say, uh, throughout the scriptures, there's always this, the two sides. So what the the Bible does is it takes away the the crippling burden of trying to make ourselves holy, but it also encourages us to pursue holiness. So we pursue it with confidence, knowing that God will bring it about. But we don't imagine that the burden rests on us to chisel ourselves into holy men and women. When Paul went to Corinth, um, he did a right um, an imbalance, didn't he, in the fact that they weren't, well, they had partisan spirit as well with Apollos and Christ and everything else. But he did also heavily emphasize, didn't he, to build up the church through the, Holy, through the gifts of the Holy Spirit in chapter 14, 1 Corinthians 14, 12, try to excel in those that build up the church. Would you agree with that? Oh, definitely, yeah. I mean, that's the idea that the the gifts are given for the common good. I just mentioned that in the sense of it's very easy for us to to think of the gifts in a personal way. If if I had that gift, wouldn't it be great for me? As opposed to, couldn't I serve the church in greater ways? But yeah, there's no doubt. I mean, the New Testament, as we'll see next time talks about the gifts regularly and each list of the gifts is slightly different telling us that, that there's a, a wide, wide variety of, of gifts given to build up the church and so therefore they're necessary. If we didn't need all those things, they wouldn't be given to us. So yeah, there, uh, there's no sense in which I was intended to downplay the gifts. It's just this difference between God being more interested in our character than in our Abilities. But yet our abilities are necessary for the church, otherwise God wouldn't have given them. The church needs us to use our gifts for the building up of the body. Do you accept every gift that is listed in Acts and 
Corinthians everywhere. Yeah, does the New Testament say any of them are not given anymore? Doesn't? Doesn't, does so, it? Yeah, the Holy Spirit gives according to his will, and, and why should I say that it's, he can't give certain gifts anymore? Mm-hmm. Yeah? That's great. And uh, if you could next time address the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I've never really heard any teaching about that um, in the New Testament. It'd be great. Yeah, we can. If we don't do that next time, that would be one of the, the questions we look at in the in the net with the last one. But yeah, we need to think about that. Any other thoughts or comments? Well, before we eat, shall we pray? Father, we thank you for your Holy Spirit. We thank you that when Jesus returned to your side in heaven, he said to his disciples, I will not leave you alone. And we thank you that we are not alone. Your Spirit is here and active. And Father, we want to live our lives cooperating with your Holy Spirit, not pulling to fulfill our own ambitions or our own agendas. We want to work in a way that is in line with what the Spirit is working to do among God's people. And we do particularly want to grow in the fruit of the Spirit that we display in our own lives. We see how far we fall short, and yet we don't despair because we know that the Spirit is active and we want to sow, help us to sow every day of our lives things that will encourage good fruit in our lives. We want to be more like Jesus and we don't want to wait and leave it all until the day when we see Jesus. We want to grow more like him today. We thank you for all your gifts. We thank you for the food that is waiting for us and the time that we can spend together. We realize fellowship as Christians is a gift from you and so we give you thanks for one another as well. Amen.